Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, May 18th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, an Amber Alert for a six-year-old boy in Jackson is issued. The Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics is cracking down on health care professionals whose illegal prescriptions are adding to the opioid epi- epidemic, if I can talk. We've got details on recent arrests. Former Governor Ronnie Musgrove is taking school funding deficits to the Supreme Court. Hear what he's asking the legislature to deliver. In our book club, find out how your clicks online can translate into a personality profile for the digital you. And later, meet Chef Mark Koblitz, the budding Starkville native with the chops to become a master chef. That's all ahead. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Authorities are searching for a six-year-old boy who was inside a car stolen from a grocery store on I-55 North in Jackson this morning. An Amber Alert has been issued for six-year-old Kingston Frazier. He's a black male, three feet, nine inches tall, about 40 pounds, with black curly hair and brown eyes. He was wearing a white shirt khaki pants, and a black and gold Jordan uh, tennis shoes. Police say he was in a gray 2000 Toyota Camry when a man drove off in the car, which was left running. The license plate number is HYX783. That's HYX783. A second car believed to be involved is a light-colored two-door sedan, possibly a Honda Civic with a dent on the rear passenger side. Anyone with information should contact police. In other news, the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics is cracking down on health care professionals whose illegal prescriptions are adding to the opioid ac- academic or rather epidemic. Uh, they are complaining and warning professionals to stop writing fraudulent prescriptions. On Wednesday, the agency announced the arrest of two nurses and civil penalties for a pharmacy following a month-long pharmaceutical investigation in northeast Mississippi. Two doctors also surrendered their prescribing licenses as a result of the conspiracy. MPN Director John Dowdy says the behavior contributes to the opioid epidemic sweeping the state and country. He tells MPB's Marks Rigsby this is just the beginning of a crackdown on prescription drug fraud. Uh, today we announced the arrest of uh, two nurse practitioners from uh, North Mississippi, uh, Brenda Shelton, 54, of Ripley, and Amanda Jones, 35, of Starkville. Uh, we also have uh, had the surrender of DEA registration uh, licenses uh, by two doctors in North Mississippi as well. Um, as we said during uh, the press conference earlier, uh, what this is is uh, at least what I intend it to be is a warning uh, to the health care uh, providers in this state that they need to understand that prescribing habits are under the microscope and we cannot tolerate 
with us under the opioid epidemic that we are, uh, the substantial increase in the uh, dispensing of amphetamines. Uh, we, we can't have docs and nurse practitioners out there just basically writing prescriptions outside the scope of their practice, which is part of what happened in this case, or, you know, diverting the pharmaceuticals uh, unlawfully. Do the doctors also face charges? Uh, at this time, there are no charges pending against the doctors. Uh, this is an ongoing investigation up in northeast Mississippi. Uh, once the investigation is complete, uh, we will be in a position to uh, advise as to you know who, who else may end up facing charges as a result of this from a criminal standpoint. Uh, this is just one of many of these type investigations we have going in the state of Mississippi right now. Uh, I anticipate over the next month, month and a half, we're going to be making announcements of other health care providers uh, that are going to be uh, facing similar, if not more severe charges than, than what we've announced today. How big of a problem is it now with physicians being uh, a thorn in your side, so to speak, when it comes to the war on drugs? Can, can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, I, I don't... Um, I don't think it's fair to cast a blanket uh, on all health care providers uh, in, in, in this vein in regard to these kind of investigations. Um, it's like any other profession. I mean, you're going to have a percentage that are going to do things that are unethical. You're going to have a small percentage are going to do things illegally. Uh, we've seen that in the legal profession. We've seen that in the law enforcement profession. So. Uh, by, by no means are we casting a disparaging net over all health care providers. But uh, it, it is a difficult thing to deal with when you have people who have been placed in trust uh, to provide adequate health care to people, and yet they want to uh, basically become a, a, a certified drug dealer or a licensed drug dealer because that's essentially what they're doing. And that doesn't make it right, does it? It absolutely does not make it right. What it makes it is illegal and criminal. And uh, it's like I said earlier, if, if, if you know, you're under the microscope, we're looking. And if we, um, if we, you know, find where you're practicing outside the scope of your practice or you're diverting pharmaceuticals, uh, MBN and DEA are going to be knocking at your door at some point. You were saying tip of the iceberg. What does that really mean? We are now fixing to... Uh, go forward with a very aggressive enforcement uh, platform in the state of Mississippi uh, regarding uh, individuals, whether they be in the medical profession or otherwise. Uh, we have uh, situations now where our uh, pharmacy burglaries in the state of Mississippi have increased substantially. We had 40 uh, in the state last year. Uh, those drugs that are being stolen from the pharmacies, they're going out onto the streets. So there are a number of different facets that we deal with in the pharmaceutical diversion arena. But this is the tip of the iceberg in terms of our enforcement program going forward uh, for the rest of this year, uh, trying to make sure that people aren't out there practicing outside the scope of practice or doing other things to divert pharmaceuticals for, for profit. Do you think the system itself is broken and needs to be overhauled in some way? No, I, I, don't, think this, I don't think the system is broken. Um, one of the things that we're doing, Governor Bryant uh, has made this a, a key platform uh, in terms of addressing the opioid epidemic that we have in the state. One of the things he did was create uh, the governor's uh, opioid and heroin study task force. Uh, that's made up of members of the medical com community, pharmacy, mental health, treatment, law enforcement, and one of the things that we're looking is trying to create 
parameters uh, within the different disciplines uh, to try to control the, the, the prescribing habit. And, and so through the task force, we're working to try to implement those changes. But in the interim, until those changes can be implemented, you know, we're, we're going to have to continue to combat this from an enforcement standpoint. We're never going to arrest our way out of it. But I feel very positive based on the conversations and discussions that we've had in our task force meetings that we are well on our way to uh, getting a, a handle on uh, some of the prescribing practices in, in, the, different, uh, in the different professions. Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics Director John Dowdy. Thanks for being on Mississippi Edition. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. The two doctors are still under investigation and could face charges later. Director Dowdy says the investigation is one of many across the state. Coming up, former Governor Ronnie Musgrove is representing 21 school districts in a fight for funding education. Hear arguments from both sides. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. This is MPB. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. It's quite a morning. The state Supreme Court is faced with the decision to narrow the school money gap. Oral arguments delivered in court on Wednesday debate the responsibility of the legislature to pay the portion of school funding to districts that were not fully funded under the Mississippi Adequate Education Program between 2010 and 2015. The hearing is in response to an appeal of a lawsuit brought by 21 school districts. Former Governor Ronnie Musgrove is acting as attorney for those districts. He says the court's justices should hold lawmakers to their word to spend a certain amount on schools, even when there is a revenue shortfall. Well, as far as what I've observed the legislature is planning on modifying MAEP. But uh, I believe, consistent with their obligation under Section 201 of the Constitution, that they will, in fact, uh, provide the maintenance and support of a system of free public schools in Mississippi. Now, one could debate whether they think that's it's a good one, it's not so good, or it's great, but that's part of the policy political process. That that's where the legislature exercises their discretion. We're saying that once that they exercise their discretion, they don't have an option to fund it. Section 201, just like the judges, the attorney generals, etc., budget, they must fund it. It's an obligation. Assistant Attorney General Justin Matheny is defending the state. He says the law requiring fully funding can't actually force lawmakers to control legislatures in another year. The MAP budget formula does not reduce legislators' fiscal discretion to a rubber stamp. It does not provide an enforceable mandate for future legislatures to appropriate specific amounts of money in the future to school districts. But even if Code Section 37151.6 is mandatory in terms of shell meaning mandatory, the state still wins. And that's because one legislature, specifically in this case the 2006 legislature, cannot control what future legislatures must appropriate to school districts. 
And moreover, even if the school districts have viable legal claims, sovereign immunity bars their past damages request, and then for other reasons, they're not entitled to any of the prospective relief that they sought. Musgrove is also asking that the legislature be instructed to never underfund MAEP again. Justices could rule on the case between now and November. Coming up, author John Cheney Lippold explains how and why a computer calculation is being used to determine your identity. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. John Cheney Lepold is Assistant Professor of American Culture and Digital Studies at the University of Michigan and a published author. His latest book focuses on how our society is taking digital to a new level, human identity. It's called We Are Data algorithms and the making of our digital selves. He says algorithms recreate us using our data to assign gender, race, and citizenship. He tells MPB's Karen Brown how every purchase, like, and click becomes an algorithm and determines the news, ads, and even prices we see online. An algorithm is a set of value choices of how you're going to process data, how you're going to make sense of it, what kind of reasons are you using that data, and for what goals are you processing that data for? Does everyone, every individual in the world, have some sort of algorithm or series of algorithms that define them in certain ways? Most people, even if you're just using a cell phone, as most of the people do in the world, that there's data about you that then is, making, is being used for inferences or for decisions about your life. Let's say you go online, you're someone who shops online, you Google a lot of different subjects, you're on social media. How many algorithms or collection would be about you? So for me, that question is really hard because we often don't know the extent to which we're surveilled online. But a simple sojourn across the web for about 15 minutes, 20 minutes will probably get you about 100, 200 different interpretations of who you are by about 100 or 200 different companies or agencies. That's a little scary. It's kind of ridiculous, but it's also, for me, it belies the fact that there's some kind of larger structure because we think that who we are is who we are, but as we're kind of see with, you know, the increasing use of algorithms to determine who we are, that we're really not who we are. It's who these people or who these agencies, who these algorithms think we are. How would they guess who you are? By what you buy online? By what you look at online? By who you communicate with online? Honestly, all of those, um, something that your listeners might be able to do is Google, what gender does Google think I am? And it will then lead you to a web page that Google has that shows you what the gender and age that Google's inference algorithms have positioned you to be. And for example, I'm not one, but they think I'm a 65-year-old woman. <laughs> and this is based entirely on what search terms I use and what websites I visit. So obviously they're not about how many times I rotate around the sun or how I identify my own gender. It's about something else. It's about, yeah, browsing behavior, what kind of things women, prototypical women do. And it seems like I'm more like a prototypical woman than a prototypical man. It's somewhat unsettling to me to be shopping online, looking at various items, and then the very next day, all of these ads pop up that are what I was looking at the day before. 
there's a genius in that that's actually extraordinarily creepy. They know full well that if you look at something and then you see it again immediately after, like two seconds after, it's not going to have the same effect as the next morning or at certain times of the day. And so it's not just that they're giving you the, the ad of something you've looked at, it's that they're finding the exact same time in the exact same mode that will be most likely to spur you to actually purchase that product. They know through behavioral psychology and a lot of other statistical kind of analyses that Karen's more likely to buy this in the morning because maybe she's more trigger happy with, with the buy now button. How do algorithms get it wrong? You said that you're a 65-year-old woman. They obviously got it wrong. How else do they get it wrong for people? Well, I, I think that's an extraordinarily interesting question. The idea of what a woman is for Google and what 65-year-olds is for Google is not what 65 and a woman is in real life. That there's existing structures of power as well as existing definitions that define woman and age in a certain way. Instead, it's just about if or if not your data fits a certain template or another template. And so for me, I've been 65 and a woman for, I think, several years, which means that my web browsing behavior is useful enough for Google that they're going to categorize me and continually giving me information as if I was a woman. So it's wrong in terms of how it defines me, but it's right in terms of how it follows my behavior and how the idea of woman is actually more suited for me. Is there a way, a negative way or positive way, to portray people through algorithms? There's an example that comes to mind that would be the negative way, which is um, in 2013, after the Snowden documents were released, we found out that in the PRISM program, which is the ability for the NSA to tap into Google and Facebook and look at data, that they, the NSA agents by the Constitution are not allowed to surveil U.S. citizens. But the idea online, there's no ability, much like to tell my gender, there's no ability to tell if I'm a citizen or not. So they created an algorithm that said, if you're 51% confidently foreign, they could surveil you. So in the ways that algorithms are wrong, we could be negatively portrayed as a foreigner, even though we're a citizen, and then the NSA can look at anything legally that we do online. In terms of positive, there's a lot of cases where, for example, if you have a Mac OS and you buy a plane ticket from Orbitz.com, your plane prices for the ticket might appear higher than other people who have different operating systems. And so if you're savvy about how algorithms process your data, you can know how to maybe get a cheaper ticket or on what day to buy the ticket. It's because you're using a more expensive computer? That's the idea, yeah. Or even if you have a bigger screen, they think if you have a big screen, then you're more likely to buy more expensive tickets because you have a higher paying job. One final question for you. Is Big Brother watching? Have we reached that stage and that's what's happening with all these algorithms? In terms of Big Brother, I would actually say no. Not because there's not the portent for the Big Brother to happen. I, I think that with the NSA leaks that happened in 2013, as well as just the extraordinary amount of data they produce, that it's completely possible for there to be this looming singular institution that directs us to one way or the other. There's another way to interpret it, which has a kind of gender language to it, but instead of a Big Brother, it's just we have a lot of little sisters. And this idea of little sisters says that they're kind of helpful, but they're not this monolithic thing. But much like Google can determine you or Facebook can determine you, they're not actively trying to repress you, but they're trying to help you in the way that's beneficial to them. And so in that way, you kind of lose who you are because you have all of these people or sisters or algorithms pulling you one direction or another. We are data, algorithms, and the making of our digital selves. We've been speaking with its author, John Cheney Lippold, and my gosh, this is just fascinating. Well, it was very nice to talk to you, Karen. We Are Data is available online. Happening today is the season finale of Master Chef Junior.
The 14-year-old Mark Koblitz from Starkville is a contestant on the program, and he tells MPB's Ezra Wald how he became serious about food. Both my grandmothers, they uh, bake, they cook. Uh, one of my grandmothers does a lot of cookies. The other one does homemade rolls. And so I grew up helping them. And then um, I grew up helping my mom, too. She's a great cook. She cooks most of the meals in our house. She says I'm better than her, but she still cooks more than I do. <laughs> um, actually, she was the reason I really got into cooking serious because um, in the summer when I was like eight or nine, she forced me to go to a uh, food camp. And uh, so at first I was really resentful and I didn't want to. But um, now I actually thank her uh, when I was about 10 years old, I really started to get into um, serious cooking, I guess you can call it. Cooking full meals, cooking pot pies, um, spaghetti, noodles, stuff like that. Like pot pies from scratch, not yeah, from the yes, freezer, sir. right? Correct. All from scratch. Um, cook my own chicken, do my own crust, and uh, make my own sauce and everything. So what's your favorite thing to make? My favorite thing to make is more than likely it's fried donuts. I make a killer homemade donut, I think I'd like to say. My secret ingredient is nutmeg. It brings us to a whole nother level. Um, and then any kinds of protein, really. Protein's one of my um, favorite things to cook. Like during the um, MasterChef competition, whenever we had a team challenge where everybody got on two different teams, that was really what I was in charge of. The MasterChef, is so, the season is still airing, but you've been eliminated uh, already. But I'm mean, still an amazing <laughs> accomplishment to be on there. Thank you. So what's the biggest thing that you learned getting to interact with those amazing chefs on that staff? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know exactly who um, one of the chefs said it to, but he said, don't be someone else. Put yourself on a plate. Uh, don't try to cook like another contestant or don't try to cook like me or whatever. Put yourself on a plate and be who you are. What was the thing that surprised you about working with food? Did you expect to take to it like you did? <laughs> really what surprised me was how fun it was to um, create something with my own hands. I mean, I was eight or nine at the time, so I never would have thought, hey, I'm actually half decent at this. And so, uh, like I said, from there, it just kind of took fire, and um, I kept going. I was watching a whole lot of Food Network, reading cookbooks, and just studying it as a craft just for fun because you're thinking, well, i got to pass the time somehow. Uh, but then it was really just going straight to my brain because they say you learn a lot when you're young. So I was like, one day I was like, hey, can I try this out, Mom? So I gave her my shopping list and started cooking. Awesome. So you said uh, you're, in addition to the killer donuts, <laughs> you're a protein guy. You're a meat cooker. Correct. Um, now, in Starkville, is that steak country? Maybe not as much steak country uh, as more barbecue country. Barbecue country. Definitely. So do, do you mm -hmm. barbecue? I've started to get into barbecue. We have a little all smoker. Okay. So uh, it's a little hard to barbecue, but uh, Super Bowl Sunday, I made killer brisket. Uh, recently, I smoked and cured a whole pork belly, wow. which was amazing. That was one of the best smoked things I've ever done. In Starkville, what's the preference, a, sweet, a sweeter sauce or a spicier sauce? To me, it's a sweet sauce. I like North Carolina, but I definitely think it's a, a spicier, more Memphis-style sauce uh, just because we have a lot of sweets in um, Starkville, but um, those are all new things. But we're old school when it comes to our old-fashioned food like barbecue, steaks. We like a, a certain steak sauce that probably can't say on radio, but... um. May or may not start with a letter and end with a number. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody knows which one you're talking about. Yes, sir. So tell me, is this something that you think of as you're looking for the rest of your life or mm -hmm. for a career or something mm -hmm. like that? 
I definitely want to do cooking as a career. This is my passion. Um, I enjoy going on TV and showing the world my skills and um, showing them how easy cooking can be. I might not be making the easiest things uh, during competitions, but I like showing off my skills. I definitely want to own restaurants. Uh, I say restaurants plural because that's really my main goal. My goal is to own a restaurant in every southern state in um, the south. But I definitely want to start off owning uh, my first restaurant in my hometown, Starkville, Mississippi. That sounds interesting. Save me a spot <laughs> when you get there for sure. Yes, sir. Um, so Mississippi doesn't always have the most positive relationship mm-hmm. with food. Mm-hmm. As a sort of up-and-coming chef of your generation, mm-hmm. how do you approach that? I mean, are you even, at, at your age, are you even <laughs> concerned about health yet? Or are you like, keep those vegetables out of here? How are you going to take that characteristic Mississippi mm-hmm. flavor and prepare it for the next generation mm-hmm. that's going to need a different preparation mm-hmm. in order to stay healthier. Yeah. Um, so that's still one of the things I am getting used to. I, I've started to cook a lot healthier. I mean, I use pasta water, some of my pasta water when I make mac and cheese. I use that instead of a lot of cream. Uh, I use milk instead of cream, like I said, a lot less salt than what I used to. I still use butter, but not quite as much as I used to is butter. You, you got to use it in Southern cooking. Right. But um, just slowly but surely, I'm really adapting my uh, cooking style to uh, fit a little healthier lifestyle that my generation and the next needs. Mark? Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio. Up next is Creature Comforts. Join us tomorrow at 830 for Mississippi Edition. 